Howdy y'all, and welcome to Firefighting Legends. It's been a little chilly of late in these parts. If you live in Texas, I hope you're staying warm and well-fed. As for me and mine, we made it through the snowpocalypse just fine, and while snowed in, I've been wondering whatever happened to my old friend Amato, with whom I carpooled back and forth to rookie school every day for six months in 1983. Amato was a missionary in Costa Rica before he joined the fire department, a polite, well-spoken fellow who I have neither seen nor heard from since shortly after graduating. I've also been thinking about another friend, Bradley, who was not a firefighter, but a counter salesman at an air conditioner parts house. I used to buy parts from Bradley back when I had a bad habit of working off-duty jobs when I was not at the fire station. I am now making up for all those years of working two jobs by not working at all. Like anything else, not working is a skill that has to be worked at. And I can assure you I am working very hard at not working. And in fact, I think I'm getting really good at it. Now, where were we? Oh yes, Bradley. Bradley had some disfiguring scars that I never asked about because they weren't any of my business. But then one day, after I'd been doing business with him for a couple of years, out of the blue, he told me the story of how he got his scars. We'll come back to that, but the title of today's episode is The Knife and Gun Club, and even though we're going to be focusing on just the Dallas chapter of that venerable institution, there's a lot of history and a lot of different stories we need to cover in a short time, so we better get started. Back in the year 1690, the Spanish explorer Alonso de Leon, quote, discovered, unquote, a river and christened it La Santissima Trinidad, which in English is the Holy Trinity, so named for the three forks of the river that converge in the area we now call Dallas-Fort Worth. The Native Americans in the area already had a name for the river. They called it the Archicosa, but I don't believe they were consulted. So the new name stuck, and a century and a half later, John Neely Bryan would build his famous cabin near the banks of La Santissima Trinidad. But while the river may have been holy, the settlement he founded was anything but. In fact, if anything, its combination of outlaws, alcohol, and guns would make for an unholy trinity own the Holy Trinity. Consider that in 1855, John Neely Bryan the founding father of Dallas, had to skip town after shooting a drunk that had accosted his wife, or that he thought had accosted his wife, the mere suspicion of an insult to one's honor being quite sufficient reason to shoot a man in Dallas in those days. Not that all that much has changed in that regard. In Texas, it is still considered a reasonable defense against a charge of murder if the man needed killing. Mr. Bryan himself was given to too much drink, so I wouldn't be surprised if our founding father was in fact drunk when he shot the drunk. And the year after John Neely Bryan skipped town to avoid arrest for that incident, the thin veil that separated the lawless frontier side of Dallas from the more respectable families was rent asunder when the son of a prominent family was shot dead playing cards in a saloon. It was one thing when cowboys, gamblers, and drunks shot each other, but now a line had been crossed and something had to be done, and something was done. It was as a result of this particular killing 
that papers were filed to incorporate the town of Dallas with the goal of bringing some measure of law and order to the lawless settlement. As an incorporated town, Dallas would continue to grow and prosper, and there would be more fine, upstanding folks moving to town, but there would also still be saloons filled with alcohol and plenty of them. It is noted that in the year after the fatal card game, there came to be a distillery at Cedar Springs, which was said to produce a good quality of whiskey. Dallas also got its first brewery that same year. I think the introduction of a brewery may have been a good thing since it has a lower alcohol content than the whiskey that was so popular. In any case, less than 30 years later, Dallasites would be consuming 52,000 kegs of beer annually, so there certainly was a market for it. In 1858, the town marshal, the freaking marshal, killed one of the town's vitally important founders, Alex Cockrell. The marshal did not do this in the performance of his duties, nor in self-defense. The fact is that the marshal owed money to Mr. Cockrell and was tired of being harassed about making restitution, so he shot him dead. The marshal did not go to jail for this, nor did the town newspaper dare to excoriate him for it. At the time, if you wanted to be an outlaw, it was useful to first become a lawman. And then there was Mayor Ben Long, who had immigrated from Switzerland and whose last name was originally Lang, L-A-N-G. But he changed it from Lang to Long to sound more like a local name, the better to fit in with the local folks. Now, I'm no historian, but I think that was a common thing for an immigrant to do at one time. In fact, I have a friend whose family name was Fox, spelled F-O-X, and he once confided to me that F-O-X was not the original spelling. When his grandparents immigrated to the United States from Germany, at first they kept the original spelling of F-U-C-H-S. But this was back in the day when everyone's telephone number was in the local phone book, and they received so many prank phone calls asking to speak to Mr. Fox that they gave in and Americanized the spelling. Anyway, Ben Long, after serving his term as mayor, became a commissioner. In 1877, Commissioner Ben was in a saloon in Dallas when a man refused to pay his bar tab. Ben came to the bartender's defense and helped throw the man out of the saloon. But the man soon returned, armed with a gun, and shot both the bartender and the commissioner. The bartender survived. The commissioner did not. If it seems shocking that a former mayor was killed, well, Ben Long was not the only former mayor of Dallas to be shot and killed. Five years later, in 1882, J.M. Thurmond, another former mayor and a sitting judge at the time, was killed in his courtroom by attorney Robert Cowart. Mr. Cowart was tried and acquitted of murder, however, because it seems that the judge actually drew first. Speaking of saloons and gunfire, we had a dentist whose practice was located on Elm Street between Market and Austin. His practice was declining because he had tuberculosis and was coughing on his patients. This did not go over too well with them, as you can imagine, so he took up gambling as an alternative means of income and was soon arrested for exchanging gunfire in one of our local saloons. This was in 1875. 
His name was Doc Holliday, and this was before he left for Arizona, where he would have his famous gunfight at the OK Corral. And then there's Myra Maybelle Shirley. Myra was born in Missouri in 1848, but moved to Syene, Texas in 1864 during the Civil War when she would have been about 16 years old. Where is Syene, Texas, you ask? Nowhere, really. Not now. But it was a community just southeast of Dallas consisting of about 300 folks, and it had six saloons, which means they had one drinking establishment for every 50 people, man, woman, and child. The town dwindled when they wouldn't pay out of their own pocket for the railroad company to have a depot there, and so the railroad passed Syene over in favor of the town of Mesquite. The area that was once Syene is now inside the Dallas city limits. The only remnants remaining of the community, to my knowledge, are the road leading from the Fair Park area of Dallas towards Mesquite that bears its name, Syene, and a couple of historical markers. But back to Myra Maybell Shirley. She married her first husband, Jim Reed, a couple of years after moving to Syene. Jim was an outlaw, and they spent a lot of time on the run, but the marriage did produce two children in between all the traveling and criming, Rosie Lee Pearl and James Edwin. That first husband of Myra's, Jim Reed, would live a short life, as was common for outlaws. Jim was shot dead by a marshal in Paris, Texas in 1874. Myra then, according to some sources, married Bruce Younger, who promptly abandoned her. Six years later, in 1880, Myra married yet another outlaw, Sam Starr. At this point, you might think an intervention would be in order. Myra clearly could use some help picking romantic partners. In that respect, Myra reminds me of a pretty young lady I transported to the hospital once who had been beaten black and blue by her boyfriend. She confided in me that she knew the guys she picked for her boyfriends were bad boys, but that those are the ones she liked. So what could she do? Myra and Sam would end up being in league with a Jesse James gang. They would also end up doing time in jail. After the stint in jail, Sam was killed in a gunfight in 1886. Myra herself would be taken out by two blasts from a shotgun three years later in 1889. Her son, James Edwin, did not live much past his mother's death. He, too, had been an outlaw and had already survived one serious gunshot wound, but he turned his life around, became a lawman, and was entering an illegal saloon and gambling parlor to make an investigation when he was met with two shotgun blasts, just like his mom. His life ended at age 25. Myra's daughter, Rosie Lee Pearl, was not an outlaw, at least not on the same level as the rest of her family had been but instead had chosen to make an honest living as a prostitute and later a madam until Fort Smith, Arkansas, where she had been plying her trade, made prostitution illegal in 1916. Say what you will about her use of her personal assets to make her living, they afforded her a longer life than the rest of her family who used six shooters to make theirs. 
I should also mention that the outlaw we've been talking about, Myra Maybelle Shirley, preferred to go by her nickname, Belle, thus making her married name, Belle Starr, the name we all know her by today. Much has been written about Belle Starr, and there's a street named for her in Dallas. It's only a block long, but it crosses Syene Road in the heart of what was once the community of Syene. All of which brings us to the next part of our story involving the Dallas chapter of the Knife and Gun Club in more modern times. When I was a rookie assigned to Station 4, I was only there maybe half the time. The rest of the time, I was swinging like a pair of garden gates, by which I mean I was on the road as often as not, swinging to whatever station was short that day, and I managed to work at least one shift at most of the over 50 different stations in the city during my first two years on the department. I still remember the first time I swung into Station 31 on Garland Road in Casalinda. The station was built in 1947, but it was old when it was new. Much of the building material used to construct it having been salvaged from old houses torn down to make way for the construction of Central Expressway. I had brought no bedding with me that day other than a light blanket, a choice I would soon regret. The old heads there liked to sleep with the windows open regardless of the weather, and a blue norther came through that night, bringing snow with it. The next morning, I had to shake the snow off that blanket after I crawled out from under it half-frozen. To my surprise, I would end up being assigned to that station just a couple of years later. Soon, I became a paramedic and was assigned to Station 53. And not long after that, the department added an ambulance, moved others around, including ours, and I was given a choice of going to Station 32 or Station 31, both of which would now have ambulances, and I chose Station 32. So naturally, the department sent me to Station 31. I think there was a note in my personnel file with instructions to make sure I never had any say in where I worked, because I didn't not until close to the very end of my career. But I was okay with that because I was getting paid every two weeks regardless. So I packed up my gear and moved to Station 31. My second favorite thing about that station was the brass poles, which had a little bit of give to them when you jumped on them and thus were even more fun to slide down than the sturdy steel poles I had grown accustomed to at Station 4. But my favorite thing there had nothing to do with the structure or even the district. My favorite thing was actually my riding partners, Mike Barrett, Sal Garcia, and Ron Watkins, each of whom were great to ride with. Mike was the senior man and the driver. He was a good medic and a natural comedian, which is exactly what you want in a paramedic partner. Mad medical skills for the life and death emergencies and an ability to make you laugh so hard in between those calls that the stress melts away. It is hard to be both stressed and laughing at the same time, and Mike probably kept all of our mental health in check that way. In fact, later in his career, Mike would go on to serve on the Critical Incident Stress Management Team, which I imagine was a natural fit for him. Late one evening, Mike and I got a call for a motor vehicle accident on Northwest Highway. On arrival, we found a car had left the road and smashed into a brick wall. 
the driver was unconscious. As we prepared to extricate him from the wreckage, we noticed holes in his body that were not part of the manufacturer's standard equipment package. There were bullet holes. If you're a medic, you know the drill. ABCs, IVs, oxygen, packaging, extrication, and haul ass to the nearest trauma center, all of which we did. While we were at the hospital, we learned that there had been a shooting at the Bell Star Saloon a little earlier, which, given the name, Bell Star Saloon, the fact that there would be a shooting there has got to be the least surprising thing ever. But I suppose if you're choosing a name for your drinking establishment, the mom-and-dad-approved completely safe place to drink a beer establishment doesn't have quite the same cachet as naming it after a famous outlaw. The Bell Star Saloon was a popular country and western hangout in Dallas in the 1980s. It was on North Central Expressway near Southwestern, and as it turns out, our shooting victim had in fact been at the Bell Star Saloon at the time of the incident. But he wasn't a victim. He was the perpetrator. He had been drinking at the bar and had been causing problems. He was given a warning to cut it out, but he continued to create a scene and ultimately was thrown out. Upset at what he perceived as an injustice, he soon returned with two guns and opened fire, critically wounding two men. He himself was then shot by the owner as he was making his getaway, and that's how he wound up in the back of our ambulance after losing consciousness a few miles from the scene of the crime. Miraculously, although the injuries were critical, everyone shot in that incident survived the two innocent victims, and the perp. It was probably about 10 years after the Bell Star Saloon shooting when Bradley, the air conditioner parts salesman, who you will recall from the beginning of our story, confided in me out of the clear blue how he had gotten his scars. His story began with, Well, I used to be a bouncer at the Bell Star Saloon. It's a big town, but it's a small world, isn't it? Bradley went on to explain that although he personally had not been involved in throwing this individual out, he was the unlucky person who was at the door when the man returned armed with two guns and an axe to grind. The first shot was a shotgun blast that took Bradley to the ground, but he was still conscious, lying there on his back. Then the gunman stood over him, produced a revolver, and pointed it directly at his head. Now this is where it gets weird. Bradley swears that time slowed down at this point and that he could see the bullet coming out of the barrel. He says he flinched, turning his head to the side, and he believes that is what saved him. It was a small caliber gun, a twenty-two and the bullet entered obliquely between the skin and the skull. It penetrated the skin, but not the skull. Instead, it skirted around the skull and lodged near the back of the head, merely between the skull and the skin. Remarkably, Bradley survived both a close-range shotgun blast to the body and a point-blank pistol shot to the head. I don't know how many other people alive can say that, but I think that's a pretty exclusive club. 
I did make a call one time where a woman's husband had shot her point blank between the eyes. And when we got there, she was standing up, screaming, Woo! It hurts! Her husband was standing nearby, speechless, with a look of utter disbelief on his face, as if he were looking at a ghost. I don't have an explanation for how she was alive. I was riding the engine and did not go with the medics to the hospital. But regardless, Bradley still wins the luckiest person alive contest because the body shot should have killed him in the first place before he took the headshot. Another runner-up for the luckiest man alive would be a police officer friend of mine who survived two shotgun blasts to the body, the second of which was at point-blank range. But he was wearing a bulletproof vest, and I think that's cheating, so Bradley still wins. Bradley's Bell Star story does not end there, however. The shooter survived and went to prison, and a few years later filed a jailhouse lawsuit against the Bell Star Saloon and the bouncers personally, including Bradley, who he nearly killed, and who wasn't even involved in throwing him out in the first place. The basis of his lawsuit was that he was wrongfully thrown out, roughed up in the process, and if they hadn't mistreated him and made him mad, he wouldn't have had to come back with guns and shoot two men and wouldn't then have been shot himself as he was making his getaway, and therefore he would not be sitting in jail now. Rather tortured logic. The lawsuit, thankfully, was thrown out. Looking back over the long history of the Dallas chapter of the Knife and Gun Club, I am reminded where I first heard that term, Knife and Gun Club. It was from my rookie school instructor, Donnie Irwin. Donnie had been a Marine during Vietnam before becoming a firefighter paramedic in Dallas. And he had a war story for everything. He was the one who told us that after we finished our training and got assigned to a station, we would be very busy when the Knife and Gun Club came out on Friday and Saturday nights. He also told us a story about a bar shooting he responded to once. The victim was on the ground, and Donnie and his paramedic partner were working on him. Someone came up from behind and asked if the patient was going to make it. Donnie said, I think so. We're doing everything we can. And the person replied, no, he ain't, and proceeded to shoot him again. Me and my classmates graduated in the fall of 83. I got assigned to Engine 4 while my carpooling buddy, Amato, the former missionary I told you about at the beginning of this story, he was assigned to Engine 32. On Amato's first shift, Engine 32 was assigned to investigate a smoke detector going off at an apartment inside the complex at Samuel and Honeycutt. But there was additional information the 911 call taker had that was not passed on to Engine 32. Information that, had they known it, might have led them to stage at a safe location and wait for police. But they didn't know it. So they did what we always do. They proceeded directly to the apartment to investigate. An apartment occupied by a man with a gun and a severe mental disturbance. Before it was over, the two firefighters who went with a model to that apartment were critically injured by gunfire. Fortunately, both survived. 
Amato himself managed to escape unscathed, but his career as a firefighter was DOA. He decided this was not the life for him and returned to being a missionary. Of course, as any good missionary might tell you, there's nothing new about the Knife and Gun Club. People have been doing this since Cain slew Abel, although maybe it was known as the Knife and Rock Club back then. Until next time, y'all stay safe out there. Sources for today's show included Dallas, The Deciding Years, a historical portrait by A.C. Green, and The Lusty Texans of Dallas by John Williams Rogers. Both are excellent books on the history of Dallas that I highly recommend. I would also like to note that my friend's name is not, in fact, Bradley. I changed his name for this story to protect his privacy. You can visit the website firefightinglegends.com for more information related to today's show. If you'd like to help spread the word about this podcast, please give it a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and every major listening app. My name is Chuck Hampton. Thanks for listening.